Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined as always by my very good friend, Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. How are you? I'm good. Hi, everyone. How are you, Tim? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Uh, recovering from an all our friends party. So I've got a nice warm glow, but I may not be very articulate for this particular episode. Let's see. Or maybe I'll, <laughs> or maybe I'll be even more insightful than usual. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is the, um, second, obviously <laughs> I'm going to be a bit slow today. Um, yeah, this is the, uh, second part of the episodes that we're doing on the 12 inch single, which are all part of our current series, series four, which is, um, taking root once again in New York City in the years 1975 to 1976. In the last episode, we covered the introduction of the first non-commercial 12-inch singles and in particular looked at the kind of central role played by Tom Walton. And we're going to pick up the story of the 12-inch single again for this episode, uh, but also wanted to kind of also move sideways as we attempt to go forwards uh, and take a, a, a look at what was had already been going on uh, in Jamaican dub music, which we have looked at in the last series somewhat, but wanted to remind ourselves and develop a bit here, given that we're on this topic of the remix and that Jamaican dub did anticipate some aspects of that. So, Jem, do you want to speak a bit more on Jamaican dub techniques? By the time the 12-inch single got established in New York... Uh, on the dub scene in Jamaica and to some extent in other parts of the world that were connected to it, then comparable formats had had already been used to some extent because the standard format size for the dub plate uh, was actually a 10-inch, although people would also use 12-inch acetates as the dub plates. Just to remind us what that means, so this is part of the process of getting a record from being recorded on magnetic te- quarter-inch magnetic tape in the studio to the final retail vinyl record product. Part of that process usually involves pressing up a few copies of a, a close-to-finished version that are playable, but they're, play- but they're on material, they're on acetate rather than hard vinyl. So they're playable but they're only going to be playable a few dozen times really without eventually the grooves getting worn out but because it's this quite soft heavy material the bass response is really good and this that is where the name dub you know comes from because the fact that people were playing dub you know the standard practice of the sound system djs and selectors was to play dub plates and as i say the dub plate the most common format for a few years between the late 60s and the early 70s, in particular for the dub plates was the 10-inch, not not the 7-inch or the 12-inch. Sort of underused format, the 10-inch, I think. It's quite, you know, it can make it sound really good and fit a long track on it, and it doesn't take up as much space as a 12-inch. I sort of think in, a, in this parallel universe, which would have been a better one than the one we live in, uh, in which dub really becomes the thing which sets the template for other types of musical practice to follow i always have this fantasy about living in a world in which you know everybody is listening to really high quality vinyl and there's a whole rather than listening to digital formats and there's a whole culture of people getting dub plates pressed up all the time of tracks that they've made and and listening to them theirs and their friends music in that way 
And I also think in this parallel universe, probably, um, I think probably 10 inches would have taken off more as a format, kind of long play singles. I think I think it's partly because 12 inches singles were assumed to be a relatively short-lived fad. So it was just cheaper. It was just easier to use the same acetates and the same blank vinyls as you would use for LPs. The, the 12-inch single really well, when did the, the When did the 10-inch format. format originate? I don't know, actually. It's a good question. I don't know. I know they were using it by, I think it, well, I do. Well, what I know is, I know the 10-inch format was around for a long time because I think there are 78 10-inches that exist. So 10-inch was around, 10-inch has been around for a long time. I mean, there's no reason why it wouldn't be, really. As soon as you, if you can make a 45, a 7-inch and you can make an LP, then you can make a 10-inch. But the, the, what there isn't is a lot of commercial release of anything other than seven inches until 1976. Labels don't start releasing commercial retail at 12 inches until I don't, or te, or I don't I'm, I'm not sure about 10 inches actually, but I don't think there's, well, I, I do know there's not many, if there are any big commercial commercial releases of 10 inches it's more that just people are used to handling these larger formats because the people are used to handling 10 inch and 12 inch dub plates so reggae does become the scene outside the new york disco scene where the 12 inch format is is adopted first after new york but it's only adopted from 1976 and it's recognized within that reggae scene immediately as coming from new york coming from disco so from really early on 12 inch releases of reggae tracks are called or referred to as disco mixes even though they don't bear it there's nothing disco about them that's one of the interesting things i mean something i'm sure we'll talk about eventually is like the novelty disco mix of all kinds of other genres of music from like classical to country or something is going to become a phenomenon by sort of 79 80 or film soundtracks or whatever but what that's always going to mean is it has a 4-4-B and probably some quite a treaty string section added to it that's what it's usually going to mean the disco mix of anything from like the Star Wars theme to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony whatever else you want to listen to but that's not what it means in reggae like it doesn't the, the when things are released and, and, and they're referred to as disco mixes and they're not at all they're just all it means is it's on a 12 inch in fact usually the tracks aren't even longer than they would have been on a seven inch sometimes they are from sort of 77 on onwards but so it's interesting that people recognize the format as a as coming from disco that's what that's what they recognize it coming from but they weren't interested in replacing the uh, reggae beat with a 4 4 4 to the floor beat. And it's Studio One, uh, not surprisingly, Studio One, which really started, which is, is first record, is first releasing things on 12 inch. Studio One, as, uh, you know, as we've talked about before, yeah, it's Cox and Dodd's uh, label and studio, uh, really, really crucial in the evolution of, uh, of reggae and dub. And I, one of the tracks that gets mentioned, the one I've seen mentioned most often, the claim most often claimed to be the first to be released on a 12 inch, is the Jays and Ranking Trevor, Yahoo.
Yeah, so the original release, it's five and a half minutes, the track, which you can fit on a seven inch, but it would have been long. But I think what's interesting is that clearly the properties of the 12 inch single compared to the seven inch, the fact that it makes it makes a, a high fidelity reproduction easier, it makes a good, uh, a nice heavy bass response easier, were very quickly recognized by people in Jamaica and they were adapted and it was adapted to their purposes although interestingly it never became the dominant format in reggae it's always sort of surprised me it never did become the dominant format partly just because it is more expensive because at the end of the day you're looking in a market in which people have very little spare money to spend so and a seven inch is cheaper to produce especially a dinked one that doesn't even have vinyl in the middle and that and therefore cheaper to buy so I think that's why it didn't become the dominant format, but it was adopted and recognised really quickly as suiting the aesthetic priorities of reggae with its capacity for high fidelity high fidelity bass. The other th- most an obvious thing to point out really is that um, you know there's the format and there's there's the use to which the format or the technology is is placed. And the thing about the twelve inch single uh, that we were partly exploring last time. Uh, was the way that it encouraged uh, producers and this kind of emerging um, profession of remixers to kind of restructure records according to the needs of the dance floor. It just so happened they could kind of take that 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 uh, technique further on the twelve inch, and the twelve inch became renowned for that. But what we explored last series to a certain extent, and probably is worth repeating here just briefly, is that you know a lot of this technique or the approach to kind of cutting records specifically for a dance floor was developed in Jamaica, in the, especially in the late 1960s and early 1970s, when um, producers, you know, with you know, we know as we said with King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry, notoriously at the at the cutting edge of this practice. Uh, you know, preparing mixes that would then be played that night on sound systems to test a audience response before then potentially releasing the record. Um, and that's, you know, that's the same process that's going on in, to a certain extent, in many ways that then gets to be t- uh, repeated in New York City and and arguably in some respects taken further because the kind of a- the aesthetic that is developed in New York as, we, as we've already seen and will continue to see this this in this episode gets to you know stretch it out in temporal terms and if you stretch something out in temporal terms you can kind of you can sort of technically do more if you want to uh yeah and that's where maybe what we what we get to understand you know with with the divergence in these formats here is the way in which i suppose you know the energy on the dance floors or the aesthetics on these dance floors in new york city and say kingston were were diverging basically because you know, one of them basically started to you know want to have you know only listen more or less to records that lasted for six to ten minutes, uh, whereas as you say, the twelve-inch format, even though there'd been all this innovation in terms of cutting records for dance floor consumption in Jamaica, that that format didn't take off in quite the same way. But it's interesting. I didn't know all that about uh, the year that the twelve-inch was released in Jamaica, actually. I've quite often bought one of these disco mix records, like thinking, oh, oh good, it'll be long. Because I'm, because you know, it's basically I'm a, I am a, you know, a, dis, a DJ from the house and disco tradition, and I like having, <laughs> I like, I do like tracks to be at least six minutes long. So otherwise, I get flustered trying to decide yeah. the next one. Yeah, well, well, there's that as well. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> DJs these dis- days have got it easy. But it's I, <laughs> I've often been disappointed by how short they are. It is a hot. There's a whole interesting conversation which we don't really have time for here about why really long tracks never do really become a part of dub and reggae because you think with all that 
aesthetics of space and sort of exploration and you would think they would have become more of a thing. You know, it's easier to imagine a, a world in which Lee Scratch Perry is doing sort of twenty-three minute tracks than the the one in which he isn't. But he isn't basically. So, I guess that is that sort of speaks to what we were talking about on an earlier series about the differences between a psychedelic aesthetic, sort of properly conceived, and dub and reggae. That's one of the re- ways in which it isn't really psychedelic, because it never it never does become about sort of 20 minute exploratory tracks it always remains focused on these quite tight productions which that itself is a constraint which obviously is generative and it produces you know the reggae producers and arrangers you know by the late 70s by the second half of the 70s have become really expert at producing very very dramatic pieces of music like within very short spaces of time but i guess as a listener who's come out of that had my sensibilities so much shaped by miles davis albums and things like that i always i often i am often a little bit i'm a little bit frustrated i was wanting i wanted things to go on for longer and and change a bit more and develop it's interesting that they don't well i guess it's partly that there are different aesthetics of work here i mean i don't know i mean i think yeah of course you you'd like on one level you just kind of like you listen to more dub reggae than i do it's also yeah it's a it's partly an energetic thing i've kind of i've confessed before and i confess again i just like generally quite up-tempo music uh if i'm feeling kind of you know like i want some quiet or something i might just not listen to music at all is more likely almost but uh but there's also uh having said all that i'm at the end of a four or five minute uh dub reggae cut i'm usually feel satisfied i don't necessarily want it to go on for eight yeah it's true it, it might just be too long uh, you know, you need a certain dynamism really to carry it through, unless you're just kind of, you know, on the sofa, um, which is, you know, uh, and just not not really planning on moving too much. Um, I mean, I think again, all of this speaks to a kind of, uh, and we, we, you know, we have touched on this, and we're going to keep on touching uh, again and again. It's the, you know, just the different energies that that music creates, and clearly, there's just there's the the B, the BPM. Uh, is is get it is is more is uh higher in new york city than kingston or in you know emer- this emerging sound of disco funk yeah that is true uh, but this was you know there was something i always got this when i spoke to when we were when well, i'm sure everyone did when speaking speaking with david uh good old david mancuso uh about the dance floor and for him it was like it was like a um it was like a sci- it was almost like an ongoing scientific test and laboratory that over time he refined to to maximize the energetic release on the dance floor you know all of these elements put together would maximize the kind of you know the collective joy of the party yeah so i just think this is you know we what's going on in new york is like a scientific experiment you know and you know and the 12 inch single lies at the heart of it and you know it might be i don't know it may be for sort of climax all sorts of environmental reasons that there's you know that new york heads in this direction I speak, look it's not as if new york only dances to fast music um beginning in the middle of 19 the middle of the 1970s you could say it's always danced to kind of you know up-tempo music love is love is love is the message as we're saying it's it's in new york in the mid 70s that the 12 inch extended mix you know really becomes the the thing for which the 12 inch single format is used and probably one of the most interesting landmarks in terms of the popularization of that idea was the release of the disco gold compilation in 1975 
on and which label was Scepter on Scepter Records. And Disco, again, like anybody who's you know collected this kind of music will know that like the charity record shop bins of many countries in the world are still full of disco compilations from about usually dated from about 77 onwards. Um, some of which are just full of rubbish, some of which do you know, often have you know little hidden gems on them. And but this is the first one, and it is quite gold. I mean, I think every track on it is pretty solid. And it was released as a mass market compilation, like to make available this new, basically this new genre of music to a wider audience. This new genre of music, which had emerged as dance floor oriented, DJ oriented disco. And Moulton is the producer of all the tracks on it, isn't he? So it's interesting that it isn't marketed like this is before the era of the superstar DJ or producer. So it's it doesn't have like Tom Moulton Disco Gold on the cover. It just it's just called Disco Gold. I mean, it wouldn't it would be years years after this that you would you would get compilations released that advertise themselves on the basis that the, the famous Tom Moulton had mixed the tracks on them. I mean, the way it's the way it's obviously marketed is, is Disco. This new this is the hot new thing, yeah, exactly. isn't it? DJs are not really understood to be kind of key to this culture yet. Uh, there's not really a, there's not really any public consciousness of the of the figure of the DJ. No, or the disco. producer in this case. Well, Gam- you know, Gamble and Huff, and people do know the, who the big producers are in you know this you know soul. Yeah, music but are they, are they released? Do they have albums? My point is, like, this doesn't have Tom Walton's name parted across sure. the front. Sure. That's my point. Yes, absolutely. Because it wouldn't have yeah. been unheard of. Because people, Phil, I mean, Phil Spector's the only person I can think of, to be honest, who ever had an albums. The only like producer who had names released under his name, albums released under his name. I can't think of anyone else really. So, and probably for me, the standout track on the album is one that I have really been fond of for years and years, which is uh, Patty Joe's "Make Me Believe in You." Patty Joe. Make me believe in you. Patty Joe was a soul stroke disco singer who wasn't isn't particularly famous for a general output didn't become a huge star this was a remix of a track which was released you know in a shorter standard seven inch friendly format uh, a year or two earlier yeah and I mean she only, I'm just she only had one record before this and then there was a seven inch which was released in sort of 73 or something so yeah she was very new on the scene well, it's you know it's a classic sort of it's a classic uh, disco. It is a classic disco remix, or one of you know one of the early examples of a classic disco remix in which you know instrumental breaks are stretched and the vocals are given a particular place in the mix. Which well, it's also that intro, isn't it? I mean, it's partly the intro. I mean, already. I mean, I think it's I think it's proto disco. Really, it's very it's very stripped down. I mean, it does these terms of don't really mean very much in the end, I suppose, but um, it's certainly very early. I mean, the production is 1973. 
Um, so that's when the, you know the first sort of recognizably disco records are coming through. So the Love I Lost, the OJs is you know. But this is really this is more visionaries in sound terms. I think in a way it's very it's very stripped down. I mean you know it's produced by Curtis Mayfield. Now that's well, Curtis Mayfield wrote the song. I he think he produced it. it. Didn't he produce the original as well? I don't uh, know actually. I just know he wrote it. Yes, he was. Yeah, yeah, he did. He produced it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you can hear that. And yeah, it's that, and yeah. it's that kind of, it's that kind of, it's a very Curtis Mayfield drum that gets, you know, opens a track and Tom Walton stretches it out for, you know, and there's the bass and the little, little, is it a guitar or a keyboard? I can't quite identify it in my memory, but uh, that whole intro stretches out a minute and you'd never get that on a seven inch. It's very dramatic. I mean, I agree. It's an incredible record. Yes. I've always loved this one. It's very progressive. It has. It does anticipate that sort of stripped down kind of you know element yes, that comes before in house music, which sometimes you get in disco, in particular in the break. But you don't usually get it all the way through a record. But this really has that sort of. It's got almost that deep house vibe. Yes, it has. Yeah, yes, it has. And it's a cool lyric. It's a night. You know, he's. It, it was. We did our episode on feminist soul a while ago, and. This is de- it's quite clear that Curtis had in mind that that was the kind of song he was writing for this new young soul singer. You know, make me believe in you. It is, you know, the lyric is presented as a sort of challenge to a, you know, in a presumably, in a, pre- <clears throat> well, I think it's, well, it is presumed to be a heterosexual interaction, but um, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a presented as a challenge to, you know, to a man uh, on, on behalf of a woman to, you know, to make me believe in you, to have some, you know, to demonstrate some sort of commitment, integrity, and it was a very popular record at this venue called the Tenth Floor, which we which we have talked about very briefly. It was the first kind of private party with this sort of DJ led private party to open after David Mancuso's Loft, and the guy who did it, one of the three key guys within the Tenth Floor, was a regular at the Loft and asked David for his permission and all of this kind of stuff. And anyway, the DJ at the 10th floor, which was a strictly white gay, kind of quite elite white gay kind of gathering, uh, the DJ there was called Ray Yates, uh, who was a mix a mixed race DJ. Uh, and he had a quite a uh, um, techno kind of uh, abstract angle to some of the music he played. And this was his, like, this was his big record there. Or one of his big records, the Patty Joe. So, so it was. A, it was may have been. Yeah, it's kind of. It's got. A, you know, it's it's implied to be kind of the lyrics are implied to be intended for, you know, a straight uh, referring to a straight couple. But it was very popular on the the gay. Oh, dance yeah, well, it became a gay yeah, anthem. Yeah, yeah make me believe yeah. in you. Show me your love Absolutely. could be true. And um, yeah, I mean, it has that very. It has that very that almost that almost sort of camp sort of dramatic quality that. Uh, one tends to associate well, with records that were supposed to have been popular on the tenth floor. To me, it's more yeah. about it's more melancholic, um, and it's about the precariousness of of love. Uh, what do you think camp means, if not that? Well, I thought camp is also like tongue in cheek, ironic, uh, uh, you, often, often fun, often kind of quite fun. No, I know. don't think necessarily. Right. I think that it's it's melodramatic. Right. Okay. Uh, but it is quite, but it, you know, it does lean towards that sort of, the sort of melodrama a bit. I think it is very interesting. It does manage to remain sort of um, poised this side of camp. I think I always thought camp is something was, ironic, and this is very sincere. 
you know, I think it's not necessarily ironic. It's I think you know, there's tra- things like that Zulima track, for example. I played that. He goes on about in Dancer from oh, the Oh, maybe not that one. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I played a different Zulima on Saturday. Change. Which that yeah. is, you know, that is definitely camp. I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it doesn't. It don't, I think it doesn't only. It doesn't only. It doesn't only imply sort of artifice. It also implies a certain kind of melodrama. It's a great record. We <laughs> on that we we agree. Well, I think it, that is you know the 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 one adjective which definitely describes this record is is dramatic. I think yeah, it's very dramatic. Yes, absolutely. And it, it absolutely. Always, and, often, and it is that no, we, the sort of narrative an identificatory drama of it that really that always kind of uh, motivates people on on the dance floor and just listening to it at home it's a great great song and it, it's very powerful yeah yeah and you couldn't really and and it, it's a really textbook example of the way in which the extended mix because it is not that long it's not like 12 minutes you know it's three minutes longer than the original i think so we love doing the show uh we just completely convinced that this format will enable us to kind of dig as deep as we possibly want to into music and bring in as much cultural and political and economic analysis alongside that music as we we could dream of. Uh, whatever we're doing here is going quite a bit beyond anything we've managed in even in in, in our books so far uh, we've also been doing this for a year and a half now uh, research and recording takes up a fair chunk of time so if you can support us by visiting our patreon page and making a small monthly donation we'd be incredibly grateful and it will certainly encourage us to keep on going with even more gusto than we've managed so far um, if you do support us you'll get lots of extra content that we record for our dear patrons so that's something you can also look forward to thanks again for listening if you can't afford to donate don't worry about it uh just keep on tuning in if you can donate amazing thanks very much without music life would be a mistake great so um so yeah so that k the did the disco gold compilation came out in july 1975 um as we discussed um in the last episode there were various you know uh, developments in remix culture around this whole period but it wasn't until the spring of 1976 that the 12 inch single became a for sale commodity um, so just to remind anyone who hasn't uh, quite remembered or maybe we didn't even discuss this uh, in the last episode or i think we although i think we did touch on it um, initially uh, up until this moment, the twelve-inch singles could not be purchased in a in a store. They were being uh, released or commissioned, and then uh, and then issued, not really released, but given to DJs in order to promote a record uh, in these uh, this emerging environment of of you know the, of dance culture. So the idea was a dancer would go out to a party, a club, a discotheque. They would hear this record, the 12-inch uh, mix. They would love the record. They would go to the store, and then they would buy the 7-inch single. Uh, or if the uh, if the track uh, the, the the track was on an album, they'd buy the album. But they wouldn't be getting what they really wanted, which was the the extended 12-inch mix. And this became an issue clearly during this year that stretched more or less, well, eight, uh, maybe it's more like nine months, a stretch between the release of Disco Gold, this flurry of developments in, in remixing and, and 12-inch uh, remixes that were not for commercial sale and the release in the spring of 1976 uh, of Double Exposure's 10%. 
um, on Sal Sol, uh, which was uh, remixed by Walter Gibbons. So before we go any further with this overview of, of this uh, historic uh, development, let's have a listen to the Walter Gibbons remix of this record. The 12-inch came about through this label called Salsol Records, uh, which was founded in, I think it was uh, 1975, by uh, three Sephardic Jewish brothers, Joe Carey, Ken Carey, and Stan Carey. Uh, They'd been involved in uh, the record distribution business for a few years and had particularly uh, become uh, focused on this distribution of Latin records. And uh, it was, you know, around this point, around this time, um, that Ken Carey uh, went out dancing um, one night and basically sort of stumbled into, you know, the emerging discotheque dancing. He went to Le Jardin, which had was a midtown club, but it sort of was initially kind of uh, gay leaning, uh, and uh, had some really. Uh, important DJs playing there, including for a short period, I think maybe Nicky Siano, but definitely uh, figures like uh, Michael Capello and Bobby DJ. It was very influential for a couple of years, unusually so for an actual discotheque rather than one of these private venues. And Ken Carey went to Le Jardin one, one night and heard all this music uh, and turned to the friend he was with that night, uh, Denise Chapman, and said, you know, I want to make music that makes me feel like this way, that makes me feel so good. So Southall Records was was founded and they sort of released their debut record with Joe Batan from the Boogaloo, the Latin Boogaloo scene. Um, and that was quite successful. Uh, one of Ken Carey's first moves, because it was Ken Carey who really sort of, you know, became the kind of key figure in the label, really. Um, uh, one of Ken Carey's first moves was to go and sort of work out where all the recordings were that he liked so much that night he went out where they were being recorded and they were all pretty much all being recorded in Philadelphia, uh, in, in Philadelphia and being released on Philadelphia International. And Ken Carey went down to Philadelphia and more or less recruited. Uh, well, he did recruit um, some of the many, a number, a good number of the key musicians from that label, including the rhythm section trio of Baker Harris Young, which was absolutely central to Philadelphia International and had performed the rhythm section on tr- tracks such as MFSB. Uh, well, they were the in-house band and, and they were MFSB and they kind of released this kind of great, you know, very important record, Love is the Message, and, and many others, many, many, many others, so many of the records that we've already replayed. And, and also Vince Montana, who was an, an arranger and a vi player and a conductor, was leading the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he uh, also kind of started to kind of record um, records with Ken Carey. And very quickly, Sal Sol became one of these, you know, emerging disco labels uh, that was kind of really popular with the DJs. And it was around about, um, I'm not quite sure if it, this happened kind of in, in like late 1975 or early 1976, some, presumably sometime around then, that Ken Carey kind of more or less stumbled into this kind of, you know, uh, 
DJ who had become incredibly important to the whole kind of re- remix, to remix culture and the wider dance scene, and that, that's Walter Gibbons. So Walter was a, a bit, was born in Brooklyn. He was born in, I think it's 1956. So he was about 19 or 20 years old around the time that um, uh, he, he sort of started to connect with Sal Sol. Um, basically what he would do was he, he like other de- DJs, before the formation of the record pool, but also once the record pool got going, I'm sure that uh, you know visits were still being made to various kind of record labels because conversations were developing. And Walter Gibbons would, would uh, he, in fact, he definitely was at the for- formation of the record pool because I did um, post about this um, when we did our, on Facebook, when we did the, when we, when we put up the last episode uh, the first one that we recorded on the 12 inch and there was this photo from the sorry yeah sorry when we were doing the episode on the record pool I should say and there was this photo of the first record pool meeting at David Mancuso's loft on 99 Prince Street and uh, on the Facebook post quite a few of the DJs who were there at the time started to identify themselves in the photo and identify friends it was really really nice actually and one of them pointed out Walter Gibbons in in that photo so which was really cool and so Walter was definitely part of the record pool right from its beginning, but it's uh, but he would have kind of he had already started a DJ. I mean, everyone indeed who was at the record pool was a working DJ basically, and he got going at the a uh, number of uh, sort of commercial clubs, uh, including one that was called the Outside Inn in Queens. Uh, some of Walter Gibbons' uh, record charts or record selections appear in the uh, early issues of Vince Aletti's uh, disco file column for Record Worlds. And it's really interesting to kind of track down some of those lists and kind of listen to uh, the music that Walter was playing. And then uh, I, I struggled to, again, I'd need to, I should check this out. I'm not quite sure why I can't shouldn't know this really but it's in again in either it's around about 75 uh that walter started to play at this venue called galaxy 21 which was on 23rd street which was more or less an after hours venue uh, so went really late in the morning uh and that's where he was you know that was became his kind of main dj spot and uh he very quickly developed this important reputation for kind of being quite an avant-garde progressive DJ who would take dances in very unexpected directions. And he and Walter around this point became the DJ who did perfect the art of um, beat mixing effectively, or, or not only beat mixing, but really extending the break. So I think it'll be fun just to listen to kind of some of the records that Walter really played relentlessly during this period and he would play these records by going to the break in the record sometimes the almost the entire record is the break is a break itself and then kind of extending that break and he would kind of you know, I interviewed many people who heard Walter DJing I remember Arthur Baker was one of them and they just kind of uh, another was Francois Kabalkin who was employed as a young drummer to kind of basically play live drums alongside Walter's uh, DJing selections uh, so Francois was uh, another person who heard Walter DJing in in, in uh, I'm calling it Century 21 isn't it Galaxy is it Galaxy 20 sorry Galaxy 21 you did you did say Galaxy. Yeah, Galaxy. Yeah, you, yeah, you said that good, before. Good. Century I know, in the I know, Oh, I knew it was. It. <laughs> I thought it was a kind of. I remember it was an old like downtown big clothes supermarket near the World Trade Center decades ago. I don't know what came of it. 
Yeah, so Walter would be extending these breaks. And, you know, Francois, I think, described it to me as like listening to drums forever. He might make these kind of mixes last for 20 minutes. So there was a, pre that you know, Walter wasn't the first DJ to kind of, you know, extend the break. Uh, we know that uh, Cool Herc was doing a pretty rough version of this around about the summer of 1974, but uh, he was notoriously non-technical, shall we say, when it came to extending the break. There was no kind of precision in the in the beat magazine, whereas with Walter it was apparently seamless. There were also a number of Boston DJs who got very into mixing between the breaks, um, and that was definitely significant. Um, and some of them moved to New York and established some a bit of a reputation for themselves. So it wasn't only Walter who was doing this, but Walter was definitely the uh, the most skilled and the most ambitious and the, you know the most intense. Because um, once you got on that kind of that um, treadmill, almost uh, treadmill's not a very nice uh, metaphor, I suppose. But anyway, once you started to go, once you started to run with these breaks, it, it's like it was like. It was relentless and it kept going. So let's have a quick listen to uh, Two Pigs and a Hog, uh, which is from the Cooley High soundtrack. And then another kind of favourite break that Walter would, you know, mix between uh, is Rare Earth's Happy Song. So Francois, I believe, ended up taking that uh, break and kind of he uh, re released a replica uh, mix of Happy Song, Rare Earth, that sort of modelled itself on the way that uh, Walter would mix between those breaks. And then finally, just these, the third of these songs that Walter was just kind of very, very into, there is Jermaine Jackson's Aruku. <laughs> So yeah, so Francois actually was hired by in February 1976 by the owner of a Galaxy 21 who was called George George Freeman. And Francois would kind of, you know, uh, told me, this is ages ago when I was re uh, researching Love Saves the Day, that, you know, that Walter was, didn't, did, Walter didn't really appreciate Francois being there and would continually be trying to kind of introduce, you know, mixes and breaks that Francois would struggle to keep up with. So I'm sure that was all um, quite, quite <laughs> amusing. Um, so it was in this it was in this situation that uh, Walter got invited by Ken Carey um, to uh, remix the first twelve inch single to be commercially released. Uh, Double Exposures, ten percent. Double Exposure were uh, also a band from Philadelphia that uh, Ken Carey had signed. I should sort of briefly say, just on the this almost a sideways point on the kind of thematic of. Fordism and post-Fordism, industrial and post-industrial culture, which kind of runs, you know, partly through all, everything we've been saying. These 
you know, since the podcast began, I suppose, because we're kind of, it's all located in this kind of shift from, you know, one, one um, organization of the economy to another, um, that uh, Ken Carey kind of managed to get the Philadelphia, all these Philadelphia musicians uh, to sign to Salsol from his, where Philadelphia International, because he offered to break the, the union wage structure in terms of what he paid them. Uh, he would load them up with, you know, cigars and uh, Chinese takeaway food and just gave them a better deal, really, that kind of recognized them not as unionized musicians, um, but actually people who had kind of a star value, if you like, by having their names on the back of a record cover because people were looking out for Baker Harris Young when they were buying records. And if they saw their name, they might well buy it. And you know, on some level, there's a, this, is a, this is a kind of a more flexible labour market. It's beginning. I mean, it soon becomes quite treacherous, of course, for you know, many artists who just get, you know, just get continually exploited. Uh, but there was also a desire for you know for the old structures to break it somewhat. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, so it was in this context the double exposure signed to Sal Soul. There was there was also this kind of like there was also this desire to kind of become recognised to have a hit single, and uh, you know maybe some bands that were based in Philadelphia felt that they had a better chance with Sal Soul. That was you know this kind of hungry young label that was kind of based in New York. Anyway, Ken Carey had met uh, via Denise Chapman, who had become this. The pro- Denise Chapman uh, was uh, the promoter at Sal Sol. Much later on, Denise would um, somewhat bizarrely be in touch with me to try and persuade me why Donald Trump was a, a really good person. She'd, I think, she'd put some posts up on Facebook about supporting Donald Trump, and maybe <laughs> I'd written to her saying, "I'm a bit surprised, you know, that from this scene which is all about tolerance and inclusivity, you should support a president who." you know, doesn't want Muslims to come into the country, etc. And uh, somehow Denise had become involved with the Donald Trump campaign, I think, even. It was always something I've, I struggled to come to terms with a little bit. But anyway, way back then, Denise was, you know, very, you know, the promoter for Sal Sol, integral to, you know, an important woman within within this scene. Good friends with Walter Gibbons, uh, who she remembers as being kind of just like very different from the other DJs. The other DJs were, you know, maybe what you might call camp. Walter was quite shy. He wasn't at all extrovert. He was very serious. I'm not sure at what point he came out as a gay man. Later on, and we'll come to this story later in a future episode, in a future series, uh, he became a born-again Christian. This was, I think, during 1978, I believe. Uh, and it's quite a story around that. And um, so, so Walter was this kind of very, you know, was seen to be someone who took everything very seriously, he was always showing up on time, apparently. Um, and that persuaded uh, Ken Carey and Denise Chapman to basically give him the 10% uh, mix. I suppose what you have to remember here is that Tom Walton was doing what he was doing, uh, and he was doing it, you know, to you know, in a, you know, to a very high standard. But he was not understood to be—he wasn't a DJ, uh, and he wasn't really part of the DJ culture, even if he had befriended DJs and they wanted to hear his mixes. So Tom Walton, he, he'd also come from in the music industry. He was someone who seemed to be relatively straightforward to trust in terms of letting someone into the studio. Uh, it was otherwise; it was seen as a really big deal or a big risk to let a dj into the studio i'm not sure any other djs had actually even kind of mixed any 12 inches at this point if they had it certainly they were certainly weren't kind of considered to be major releases and already salsa was quite a serious independent label at this point it only had a few releases but it had made a big kind of impression so to get maybe i'm making making 
too much of this, but it was, I don't think so. It was a big deal to give a DJ this kind of responsibility, uh, especially given these DJs were, you know, lived a very alternative lifestyle and often had, you know, no training in engineering and the rest of it or in, in sort of basically music production. So they get the reason they, of course, gave the records to Walter Gibbons. It wasn't just because of his, you know, his personality. It was because he was already notoriously skilled at basically, you know, DJing. And what DJing was, is what Walter was doing more than any other DJ, to I would say, with his DJing, was he was doing a live remix of the records by doing these extended breaks, etc. He was kind of completely restructuring and reimagining a record. And he was doing this with more precision than anyone. And all he had to do when he went into the kind of studio was basically take what he was doing when he was DJing and trans- transfer that into, you know, basically how to cut, cut and splice tape. And, you know, this was the reason that, you know, Ken Carey and Denise Chapman wanted to bring him in in the first place. It was because the DJs had a much better understanding of how to remix a record for the purposes of dance floor pleasure and enjoyment than the producers who were, who were mixing these, who were producing these tracks in the first place. Many of whom had no idea what was going on in these dance floors um, and had no idea of the kind of, you know, how certain parts of the record were working, you know, were creating particular excitement on the dance floor, in particular, as we know, the break. So, you know, that's the main story of um, Double Exposure, 10%. I mean, to talk about the record a bit, it's, it's, it lasts for 9 minutes 48. Um, I'm pretty sure the 7-inch single had already come out and was already popular because it is a fantastic record. This is another, another important thing to say about it. And when Walter Gibbon started to play the acetate in, in uh, Galaxy 21, people could, sort of couldn't really believe their ears. Uh, you know, they, they it was you know they it was it was obviously possible that he'd kind of already been mixing, or likely they'd already been mixing between two copies of the, of this record to extend it. But obviously there was a a different you know level of intensity and precision and, and length to this particular remix. Um, Ten minutes was a much longer remix than anything that come out on 12 inch single and again the the really significant thing well not the really a, another significant thing about this um is that it was commercially released uh and actually came out i'm wondering if i get in my yeah it came out in may 1976 um the songwriter alan felder who actually has written many of mine and our favorite songs um philadelphia international based songwriter uh he wasn't happy uh, he told me the mixer cut up the lyrics and changed the music. It was as if the writers and producers were nothing. So it's quite interesting that you know the the you know the professionals within the kind of you know the production line of music weren't at all happy uh, at the development. But Ken Carey was happy. Uh, I mean, he also interviewed him for Love Saves the Day, and uh, as he said, we broke our first record via the discos, and that's where our strength still is. He told Billboard. Sorry, he didn't tell me this. this he told to Billboard. I'm claiming something I shouldn't claim. Yeah, we 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 broke our first record via the discos, and that's where our strength still is. We feel that disco spinners are better equipped to judge the public's response to disco product. A slightly dry way of saying that you know DJs kind of you know understood how to reshape reshape music for for the dance floor uh and one one final just kind of point to mention here i guess because sometimes there's some confusion around this this was it was released as a disco remix but today we might well i don't know today it's changed again but for the longest time this would have been considered an edit uh and by edit it just means you're cutting and splicing you're not going into the multi-tracks 
and you're not introducing overdubs. Uh, it's just the cut and splice. Uh, so, uh, so that's that's you know we'll we'll come back later to the point when uh, DJs start to access the multi-track recordings. And again, it's an initiative that comes from Ken Carey at Salsol, and again, it's Walter Gibbons who's uh, given the opportunity to explore what you can do with remixing if you've got access to the multi-tracks. That was uh, Lilita Holloway's hit and run, which I think was 77. Um, but we'll come back to that later. So yeah, so that was 10% by Double Exposure via Walter Gibbons. I think we thought we would finish with some just more general thoughts about the the twelve inch and its significance and what it became. And then we'll hear another track from seventy six. So the twelve inch really does go on to become the key format for dance music. I, I mean, to a large extent, I would say, insofar as dance music and club music come to be recognised as distinctive genres or distinctive families of thereof from the late 70s onwards through to the end of the 20th century really the 12 inch format becomes the 12 inch single format becomes really central to the, to that idea and it become it is the it is the key format for those kinds of music it's interesting i think presumably the real peak for commercial sales and the and the distribution widespread distribution and uh, frequent release of 12 inch singles i think it must be the 1990s eventually it must be it must be the 1990s when you're seeing house and techno and drum bass and genres like this really having the 12 inch single as their their key format and like if you wanted to listen to those musics in the 1990s, you were either, yeah, you could hear them on pirate stations, but you know, the sound would be terrible. You, you were at the mercy of whatever was being played. You could get CD compilations that, that about which we can just say all the same things, really. And an awful lot, I mean, an awful lot of tracks that even today are, are regarded as absolute classics. Like at the time, you could really only get them if you went to specialist record shops and bought them on 12-inch singles. Oh, see, I thought you, I um, thought you were maybe going to say the late, like, 1978, so that's interesting. You, you, may, well be, you may well be right. I, it's, I'm sure in numerical... T- look, yeah. in 1978, there were not like a dozen specialist record shops in London. There would have been you know, more. In 1995, the number of record shops that basically only sold 12-inch singles and, and that were going businesses on that model. I mean, at its peak, there must I think that, but you've got to remember, these were, oh, every 12, well, you look at the South Soul and there's Prelude, you look at the number of labels, it's like incredible. I mean, there's there's lots and lots of labels and, they, and they're selling 50,000 of a, of a track quite often. So Yeah, well, that's true. I guess you're talking, I guess that is a different model. I mean, probably. But yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, it's because it's, you know, house music, there's a lot, it's a little bit, we know that it's a lot cheaper to produce house music. So it's a lot easier to release them. And there's a, yes. there's a kind of, there's a big, there's, you know, it's an extended grant roots culture though it doesn't obviously get very far in the united states outside of new york and chicago although chicago yeah i mean yeah i guess even chicago's 
This is the whole thing, is that, you know, they can't, they yeah, can't. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we need to, it's a very interesting question. Yeah. I think we need to research this a bit more because you'll probably, I think you're right. Because I think on the one hand, I mean, to be honest, if you just have to look on Discogs and look at, you know, what records are widely available, I mean, it's it's much, it's probably, if you're looking for a relatively obscure record from 78 or 98, it's probably cheaper. The, the one released in 1978 is probably cheaper because there were so many were, were pressed. So and they're so easy to get. Whereas much you're talking about much smaller distribution, much smaller runs of of individual releases in the '90s. And this, of course, this is typical of the shift from Fordism to post Fordism that we keep referring to. So by the '90s, you've got in this some. I mean, the situation in the '90s. I remember people like people like our colleague Dave Hesmanhouse, who's at you know, Leeds University. Now, writing about this in the at the end of the nineties, there was this sense that the dance music industry of the nineties had a, had a sort of utopian aspect. It was this sort of dream situation of loads and loads of small labels making music that was sort of popular and accessible, but also quite experimental and attached to these quite identifiable communities of listeners and dancers. And people would you would get these quite small releases, like a few hundred, a few thousand copies of a record, but. A producer could make an okay living, like doing tracks, doing releasing, you know, a few twelve inches a year. And that audience, it was a, and it was a sort of, in terms of being very egalitarian and very decentralised and very democratic, it was this sort of very nice model. And it did really revolve. It revolved around twelve inches. It revolved around there being enough. I mean, to be honest, it did revolve around there being enough sort of bedroom DJs who would never really get to play to a big crowd. Uh, to, to, for, for people to be able to sell a few thousand copies of a 12-inch to collectors. There's um, also an expanded consumer economy. Yeah, yeah. But we're not to really, but you're right. And also, I don't know to what extent, I mean, you've raised the question, to what extent my impression of how widespread that was comes from living in in Britain at that time. Because in Britain, I mean, certainly Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Glasgow, London, between them would have had like a lot of a lot of uh, these record shops that managed to be relatively profitable for a few years but where that has probably was not so much the case like in the states as you said that would really i think you would have struggled to find an equivalent shop anywhere in the bay area for example um and or one that lasted more than a couple of years. I think I might no, be wrong. I'm sure you've done. Sure, there but, were always a few shops. There was all. There were always a few shops in the Bay Area, and there was always a good number of shops in New in New York as well. I think. But, um, well, I'm I'm talking about an equivalent mm-hmm. of like dance tracks in New York or something. Yeah, like a specialist dance record. There shop. would have. Been, I'm sure there would have been. I, anyway, I don't think. So. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not. But I generally haven't... speaking, we know that it didn't extend across the states. Uh, yeah, all, all we're saying is we don't really know. I'm saying I don't really know. Certainly in Britain, for a few years, there was a very thriving ecology. But I don't. There wasn't. Yeah, you're right. We don't really know. Actually, we don't have good enough comparative. We need to get some comparative data about this. Probably much later in the history of the show. But the twelve inch. I think it's really by the early '80s. It's established itself like as the uh, the the dance format. The idea of the twelve inch remix becomes a kind of staple of the music industry in the early 80s when you get um you get the kind of electro pop and lots of lots of sort of chart pop i don't know you can't i don't think you can it's it's happening it happens by it's continuous 
it starts in seventh in mid seventies and it never stops and it grows. And by the early eighties, by you know the turn of the decade, it's like when there's this backlash against disco, no one stops releasing twelve inch singles. All the all the music, yeah, sure, all the music that's been not, made. You're not getting look dance. You're not getting twelve inch remixes of music that is not identified very clearly as disco until the early eighties. Like you're not. It's it, the twelve inch mix. It's the twelve inch is a disco format. But what's happening by the early eighties? Is that you're getting twelve inch rem? You're, you're getting you're getting the, the idea of the twelve inch club mix is you know which is really which is aimed not even at really you know what we would think of as you know club and dance DJs. It's, it's aimed at people who are doing kind of local. Like they're playing you know they've got house parties, doing wending discos. I'm thinking of the fact that you know you're going to get just like chart pop since of chart pop groups releasing. You know, twelve-inch mixes, just as a sort of matter of course, mm. which are often mm. not very good mm. by sort of eighty-three, eighty-four. Now that's not mm. happening in nineteen seventy-nine still. So let's hear another mix, uh, a twelve-inch uh, remix from this period is Jackie's "Sun, Sun, Sun," which was released on Pyramid, I think, in June nineteen seventy-six, and it's one of Walter Gibbons's much less known remixes that came out. Um, one month after 10%, whether it was re- uh, re- recorded after 10% or at the same time, I can't quite remember. I think I might have tried to work this out at some point. It doesn't really matter. But in some ways, um, this is a more radical record, I think. The percussion really comes out uh, in the foreground, and it's very, and the lyrics, the way they're sort of cut together, is very, very trippy as well. Uh, it's very mesmeric and disorienting, and sort of, to me, is almost more of a Walter Gibbons kind of record than uh, 10%. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I couldn't. I've, I mean, I've always liked this record. I couldn't really. I was really surprised to realise that it was from 1976. It's really extraordinary. And um, I don't know anything about Jackie. Like, who are they? No, I don't know either. I'm, I should have there's no up. information on Discogs. There's nothing. I mean, there's a there's a couple of releases under that name. It's not even clear if it's referring to an individual or a group, but. Yeah, it's really an extraordinary record. It's a really experimental piece of music. And I remember this being around. Uh, this was one of the tracks that people would point to uh, in the late in the late 90s when it was still the case that lots of people from the house and techno scene were dismissive of disco. This is one of the tracks people would point to. So listen, listen to how experimental this was and how percussive and if you think there wasn't interesting stuff coming out of the disco scene, but in my head it it was from seventy eight. It's kind of really extraordinary. This came out in seventy six, and it does really speak to the uh, the the possibilities of the format. It says something about what you can do with, with a twelve inch single. The, a track of this nature becomes possible in a way that probably is that isn't possible with a a shorter format, and it isn't going to really work on a format that where you you're not going to get that percussive bass sound in in the way you're just not going to get it in the same way on a seven inch yeah yeah no i agree 
So I think there's a, a couple of other things that we can just sort of throw in before we try and wrap wrap up this episode is that, I mean, one thing is that, so why did it take a while for, you know, the commercial 12, the 12 inch format to be released commercially? Uh, well, one is that the music industry was a bit slow to kind of pick up on the idea that there was demand. And typically it was a kind of grassroots independent label that was, uh, you know, basically had, you know, its boss and, pr- and promoter going out to these uh, clubs that kind of understood the, the kind of desire- desirability of this product and were the first to release it commercially. But the other point, uh, which I uh, like just as much, if not more, is that 12-inch did disrupt the entire profit model of the record industry. The whole record industry was organised around releasing 7-inch singles that people would go out and buy. They were supposed to be the best singles by a group that was going to come out on an album. And then the singles would work not only to make money, but also to promote the album when it eventually came out. And if you liked the singles, then you'd buy the album. And very, every, every so often, someone who purchased the album would like all the records on it. But every so often, or maybe even more often, they might not. They might feel that at least some of the tracks aren't very good at all. Uh, plus, they've already, in some cases, bought the singles. And this is a, you know, this is a model that, that was doing very well for the music industry overall. What the twelve-inch does is it bypasses it entirely. Uh, if someone wants a twelve-inch single, they're not going to buy the seven-inch, and they're not necessarily going to buy the album. And it's sort of, it, uh, it feels like it's a, you know, a. a uh, sort of democrat it's a sort of democratization of the kind of commodity pro- process within within this part of the music industry at least because you know dancers are really getting what they want and they're getting kind of these quite you know specialist kind of uh, records that don't really work on radio it should be added um, not obviously um, so they're not it's not that easy to kind of make lots of money on them plus as you've mentioned a few times Jim there's kind of is more there are more costs involved in using the 12 inch format than the 7 inch format uh, because of course they don't sell for anything like the album so it was very interesting it was a very disruptive moment uh, and the DJs once again were sort of at the head of it um, so that was kind of really interesting and I think the you know just another point to make which I think is implied throughout is that this becomes a form of kind of artistry. I mean, already clearly DJing is a form of artistry. You know, the DJs don't, you know, actually make the the vinyl, but the way they select the vinyl is a very musical process. It just happens to be around, you know, it's conversational with the crowd and it's improvised and all of these other things that we've already discussed. Um, So... So that's kind of you know that we already recognise the artistry of the DJ, but all of a sudden the ear, you know, the sen- sensibility and sensitivity and responsiveness that they they and knowledge that they're required to be a successful DJ suddenly kind of finds its you know is finding its expression on a commodity product. Um, so I think this really it really does mean that the twelve inch is this kind of is an is an icon you know is the the iconic product of of this kind of of we could call it the disco era but I think we should call it DJ culture really um, you know disco hasn't got that much to do with this on some level even though it's kind of you know it becomes the most popular genre on this format but it's really an expression of DJ culture. And I think this is, you know, we were, you know, we've been done a little bit of kind of looking forward in, towards in the conclusion to this episode. And I think we kind of can recognize that, you know, it remains this, that, you know, it remains this iconic format um, 
for dance culture. Uh, it's that's it remain. It's, it's in dance culture that it has always kind of flourished. There was all there were all the predictions that vinyl as well, the twelve inch vinyl format would kind of disappear with digitization and the rest of it. And clearly, we all know that that hasn't happened. And it's because you know there's obviously a, a big love affair has developed uh, with this format. Um, for all of the reasons we've been discussing these last two episodes, and yeah, this is the this is the point where it became commercially available in, in the middle of the spring of 1976. Okay, great. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks everyone. And, uh, Go and listen to some 12-inch singles <laughs> <laughs> by Walter Gibbons and Tom Watson. And others. <laughs>